All right. So when you think of physical education or PE or gym class or whatever you called it growing up, what do you remember? Uh, that's what I remember. <laughs> okay, so judging by that response, probably the physical side of it, like jump rope or pull-ups or dodgeball or kickball. I mean, I know. I remember those painful presidential physical fitness medal exams every spring where I felt completely inadequate when it came to the pull-up section. Like my head is bobblehead nodding right now. <laughs> but I think that's what blew our mind about this conversation you are all about to hear. It's like all of the seemingly invisible yet intentional ways that PE class actually teaches us about social interactions and about our own capabilities, about deconstructing perfectionism and so much more. And what was scary to reflect on was how so many schools in the U.S. now don't mandate PE as it's a class that's having to fight for its right to exist in the education system today. So here, as we kick off the new 2022 to 2023 school year, folks, listen to what we will be missing out on in our next generation if we don't start thinking about what and how we teach our children. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. My name is Sherry Spalitz. And I am an elementary physical education specialist at an international school in Vienna, Austria, where I have been on staff for, I believe, 26 years. Sasha, that's like when we met 26 years ago. You've been on staff doing this work. I love it. I love it because, you know, this is the first time that we've had a physical education specialist on the podcast. I can say that with extreme certainty. And also one of the very few teachers that we've had on the show, even though we talk a lot about education. And I come from a long line of educators as well. I was reading a keynote speech that you gave this year where you were you asked the audience to think about that first memory of PE class, right? Which made me think of Dr. Beverly Tatum when she asked audiences to think of their first memory of race. And I loved that introspection because when I did that thought exercise, growing up, PE class was five days a week. And someone very close to me had said that he needed that break in the day, right? Because school and everything that came along with it was really tough. And if he at least had PE, he could make it through the school day because he knew PE was coming like fifth period or whatever. Which is awesome. Because for me, it was really regular throughout the week. I think when I was younger, but by the time it was high school, I can't remember, but I think it was maybe one or a couple of days a week. And we did sort of fun, ridiculous stuff like line dancing and roller skating. Like I learned the right foot over the left foot around the corner of like in high school PE class. Okay. So we did not learn that in Los Angeles. But, you know, I want to go back to that original question, because what does reflecting on our memories of PE class tell you, Sherry, about us or about who you're talking to? And how do you connect with people when you ask that question? What do you learn about them? What's interesting about that is that, first of all, just about everyone has PE memories that are somehow accessible. Often, and unfortunately, those memories that are really accessible and that are very immediate are negative ones for a lot of people. The part that saddens me is knowing that so many people have these really negative experiences that they recall, and it could be any number of things. It might be, you know, maybe being measured, you know, being weighed, being, you know, having their BMI checked in, or, you know, just not feeling like they were very competent at the sport or feeling like they had to be. Just there's so many different instances that people share 
And occasionally you get people who say, oh, I loved it. It was great. I love, you know, as a kid, I loved it. But the stories that people relate are often negative and often filled with sadness and explain a lot of reasons why, well, then I just didn't do, I thought I couldn't do sports. I thought I wasn't good at them. So I just didn't do anything for years. So there's a lot of, unfortunately, kind of a lot of sadness for a lot of folks attached to their experiences with physical education in the school setting. It's so interesting to hear you say that because, you know, we joked around about our experiences and I think things have shifted in the time that, you know, Misashi, you and I were young. I was walking around my grounds of my kids' middle school and they have goats and chickens that they keep for gardening class, which is legit. It's a public school in Denver. Right, Sherry, I've got that same look in my eye. Like what? Yeah. But I asked, I was like, it's an elective that they get to pick. And I was like, oh, I was like, so what do you do for PE? And I realized they don't take PE. It's an elective that my kids get to choose by the semester. And so not all schools are offering it. I think lots of schools by the time middle school and high school come around, it's like you can do art or music or gardening or PE. So I was wondering, what are your thoughts on PE's importance now versus when we talked about our memories? Why is PE important? Well, this is that is really astounding to me to hear about PE as an elective in middle school, because I mean, wow, it hurts my heart. Um, Just because I do believe that what we do in physical education when we're doing it well is we are offering students an opportunity to get familiar with their bodies and what their bodies are capable of. Again, if we're doing it well, then we're offering them lots of avenues to investigate that. When we remove that equal opportunity, meaning that everyone has that opportunity. Everyone has that experience of learning a variety of different things. And it doesn't necessarily have to be sports-based, but just that you learn what your body can do, that it has these different functions that you can use it to throw, catch, kick, run, jog, walk, just all these different ways you can move. And also the ways that you can be with other people and move at the same time. That when we move those kinds of opportunities from students in their day-to-day, sort of where it becomes optional, where we expect them to do math, English, history, well, maybe. An asterisk version of history. Right? Science. We expect them to do those things. Those are required. And then we also expect certain outcomes. Like, you know, you will be able to read, you will be able to write, express yourself, and so on. When we say that working with your body and understanding your body is something you can choose to learn, but you could also do something else. I worry about that. And not to not gardening. I say, yes, bring on the gardening. Yes, bring the chickens, bring the goats. Man, that's wonderful. How wonderful for those kids. But at the same time, what are they understanding about how important it is to be physically active and how cool it is, how cool it can be, how many choices you have to be physically active, that there are so many different ways to do it. So yeah, that really saddens me to think that maybe we're kind of giving up on it. PE as a field is fighting for its existence constantly, right? That we're having to justify having a budget or being in that lineup of required subjects. And so that's a case of obviously a school district having to make choices and saying, well, We can't have everything, so we're going to give people choices. It's a very neoliberal approach, but I don't think 13 and 14-year-olds should be allowed to choose whether or not they're going to do that 
right? Do, do they get to choose health education, sex education? I don't think, no, I don't think I'm going to do health this year. Both of my boys, if you ask them what is their favorite class, they say PE, hands down, so fast. And they see it as a class, right? They see it, you know, I love the framing that you talked about with knowing what your physical body can do, right? All of the things that it can do. There's the physical component of it. But then there's also some other great components of PE. And, you know, we found out about you through this Burnt Toast podcast episode where your interview was so fantastic that I immediately reached out to beg you to be on our show. And you were so gracious to say yes. But, you know, in that interview, what I loved is that you were talking about PE having social qualities too, right? Like agency and trust. Yeah, I really loved how you called it like a social lab versus seeing PE. And you started talking about it earlier, but as like a measurement contest or just about athletics. Yes. Cause I think that's a hundred percent true. Cause I think about, you know, all of my PE and my negative PE memories, right. Of sort of the national or the presidential physical fitness test. Yes. And like the, I tried to do a pull-up the other day. I was like, oh, the pull-up was like the end of me. I could hang, but I could not do a pull-up like it. Yes. And so every year there was this extreme like failure, right. At not being able to do a pull-up. And so I think now we're talking about PE slightly differently too in 2022 because we've had this lockdown experience, right, from COVID. My youngest was in kindergarten at the time. And so seeing him now in third grade and seeing them sort of stand awkwardly around, like relearning how to play with each other, right? And we miss so much of that social aspect, right, of PE for so long. And some of our kids, especially the ones who hadn't gone to school at that point at all, you know, may have gone through really formative years with none of that. So how do you cultivate that social aspect in PE? And, and what are some of the challenges in doing that? That is a great question. And it's been interesting to observe here where we also went through a lockdown, which didn't extend maybe quite as long as in other places. But we certainly saw the effects in the first months back. But what I have found in PE is that children find each other, that it's a way for kids to sort of come in, they can see everyone, right? We're in a big space. It's fairly public, right? What we're going to do, people can see you tossing, running, catching, throwing, whatever. And so there's this aspect of seeing and being seen. And that doesn't require, it doesn't necessarily require language. You do not necessarily have to talk and articulate to someone, you know, you don't have to go and talk to someone, hey, watch me throw this thing. I'm going to throw it really far. Isn't that cool? No, you don't need that. You don't need to speak the same language. But if you can throw a ball really far, other people are going to notice and they're going to be like, whoa, wow. And, you know, if you are, you know, learning how to jump rope and you see someone across the room who has really got it going on, you're like, whoa, I want to do that. And so there's this aspect that's possible when kids are given a safe frame in which to practice, in which they can try things and experiment a little bit, and also structures that allow them to be social that aren't inherently sort of like, no, you have to be quiet. No, you have to, you know, no talking while you're doing it. No, that there, you know, once I've given the instructions and I've said, find a partner, then you go find a partner and you do the thing, whatever it is. So I think there are so many avenues for social interaction 
that naturally exist in the PE domain, that it would be folly not to take advantage of that. And also being aware that for those students, for those children for whom PE perhaps elicits a certain degree of anxiety and fear, then we also need to create the conditions that allow them to feel safe, to let them know that you can try these things and you will not be shunned, you will not be made fun of, that we all have strengths and we all have areas where we don't feel as confident, but we try. And so that aspect is also important, is really making sure that all of these different experiences can come into the room, into the same room, and feel comfortable enough to say, yeah, I'm going to give that a try. All right, let's have a look. And so I think in a lot of cases with young children, they're not that bothered by things like that. Most of them are, but there are some who are still quite hesitant, but they find their way in. And also children are also wonderful at, you know, recognizing, oh, oh, this is my friend. She's kind of scared of the ball, but I want her to play with me. So they will invite each other in. And so part of what I think about a lot is, How am I creating the conditions for those things to happen? I love that. And I love what you said, because it made me think you said something about practice. It gives children a safe space to practice doing their thing. And that reminds me so much of the conversations that Misasha and I have about the opposite of perfectionism, this force that like, you're not allowed to ever make a mistake. You can't be seen as making a mistake. People are afraid of cancel culture, but it also makes me think about that idea of apologies because we all make mistakes and it's okay to apologize. And, and, you know, you mentioned to us this phenomenon on Twitter that had happened. And I wonder if we could talk about that a little bit here, because I feel like it, if it's in, we're seeing children having fewer opportunities to practice being human, to practice the limits of their physical capabilities in a place where they're not trying to like verbally perfect anything. They're just being. And so what is that going to do to this generation going forward? And what other trends are we seeing in this space? Wow. Oh my gosh, so many thoughts on that. And I will say that I work in an international school that does cater to a certain level of of elite folks. So diplomats, kids and corporate kids and people obviously who have lived in many different places. At the same time, having been at the school for so many years, I've seen literally a generation of children go through the school and there's still kids who have very fundamental needs to see and be seen and to try. And that element of being able to practice and to not worry about failing, like how do they live with that? And I find that kids, at least in our classes, in our school, I think in our PE, they see a fair amount of error. And I, and, and I will say that I do mess things up fair, you know, often enough. And recently the Twitter thing that I, I had this one tweet where I talked about addressing a group of second graders where I said, friends, I'm sorry. I messed up. I made things too complicated. I was asking you to do too much. I'm sorry. Next time will be better. That was the tweet. That's all I said. Now in response to this tweet, I got more likes and more retweets than I have ever had for anything on Twitter. And I've been on there for like a decade. This stunned me. And I got some of the comments that I got, that's so, you're so great. It's so wonderful. That's such a wonderful way. And I think that's nice. But what concerns me is how much sort of value people attach to that singular act as being, you know, indicative, like this is marvelous. And I'm thinking, but 
that should be a normal thing, right? Being able to apologize, being able to say, I'm sorry, I messed up. Because immediately after I said that, one of my students said, oh, we all make mistakes, right? So getting away from perfectionism is a lifelong journey, I want to say, right? I'm on that journey too. We're all with you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we are. But honestly, I do think it just, I find that it just, it's so much healthier that I enjoy my classes, my students so much better. And I feel like our relationships are stronger when we know this about each other. Mrs. Spalitz makes mistakes and students make mistakes and we can forgive each other. I can forgive myself. You can forgive me. I can forgive you. We can carry on. And these are such important lessons. And they just, I just think they make our life at school, our life in general, so much better. I love that because I think that you're absolutely right. This should be what is happening, right? This should be, I think about it like laws, like they set the sort of the floor and we should be aiming for like way above the floor, right? We should be just good human beings to each other. And part of that is apologizing when we are wrong, but that is not sort of, especially when you loop it back into perfectionism, right? That's not what we are focused on. You know, we're focused on, and Sarah and I were just talking about this, like our own intent, right? Versus the impact on others. And I think it's such an important thing to remember that we can't let perfectionism define us in that way. And we can't let it stop us from being human. I also think as you were talking about sort of those lessons in PE and all of that, like I have kids who play competitive sports and I can see what they've learned in PE and, you know, just how they support each other you know, as students and friends in PE, how they take that and support their teammates and high five each other. And I don't know if they would have those same social, that ability to do that in those settings, in a physical setting where you're not, to your point, like you're not conversing about necessarily what you're gonna do next, but you're still trying to support the people who are there with you. I'm not sure if they could have like drawn those lines, you know, in the same way. But I also recognize that there is, and you've talked about this too, there is resistance, right, in PE. It's not just sort of everyone's physical and social, you know, (laughs) favorite thing, right? It's, you know, so I would love to talk a little bit about how does that come up? Because I have memories of how resistance came up for me in PE, but you know, what are the drivers there? And then how do you address that? And I'm sure this varies by age, you know, and by a whole lot of factors, but I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Gosh, you just took me back to visions of like, dodgeball in the gym in elementary (laughs) school versus like, you know, the awkward badminton, like self-consciousness of high school. No, but that's, that is a great dodgeball is that's such an interesting field to even to explore. You know, you mentioned PE and dodgeball and people have all sorts of thoughts and my kids, my students, many of them love dodgeball and they crave it. They say, Oh, can we play it? today. And then we played a lay down dodgeball game, which is, it's a team oriented thing. But in, when, when my kids play dodgeball, there's never any elimination. No one is out for any length of time or you, you, you can be saved. You can be brought back into the game. So it's an ongoing thing. It's never like, oh, well, this, these are the two people who are left. Never, ever. Of course there are kids who there's a whole bunch of stuff that they don't want. They don't want to be split up from their friends. So they, you know, they have to be together with this person or I don't want to do that activity. I don't want to jump rope. I don't want to throw a ball. I don't want to run. With elementary kids, that's not really true. 
even if they can't run that far. They're like, I want to run. <laughs> and they want to scream and run. So they, <laughs> they don't want to just run. They want to scream and run. And so I'm like, mm, you're going to have to make a choice here. So, and the choice is going to be running. Sorry. I'll let me make the choice for you. Anyway, but resistance is a part of learning. It's a part of learning. Like that's like, I, in many cases, I think most of my students want to do the thing that we're going to do. They're mostly game to try the thing, to do the obstacle course, to, to, but there are certain, they have their limitations. There are things where they're afraid. They don't want to climb up this incline. They don't feel comfortable doing this thing. Then we can have a conversation. I'll say, okay, how can I help you? What would be a help to you right now? And even when kids say, oh, my knee hurts. I'll say, I'm sorry to hear that. What do you think we should do about that? And, you know, it's an honest, you know, I'm looking at them and with this serious look and they're kind of like, "Uh, uh, I don't know. Well, do you think you need to go get some ice from the nurse? No. Okay. All right. Well then do the best you can. Right. So resistance, I think in children, it really, it makes a difference to take children seriously. Right. So that question of, well, what would you like us to do about it? What do you think should be done? And they usually have an answer, but it's the question, the question that gives, that allows them to articulate what they think might be a solution. And that's true for so many things. That resistance is the beginning of a conversation. That means that we need to, we have something to talk about. Maybe there's a misunderstanding. Maybe there's something that I can help with. Maybe there's something that actually I can't have help with. I remember one time there was a child who really just, he just couldn't do the things. And, he, and when I actually later, and he didn't want to talk about it, but finally, when I asked him later, he said, I'm sad about my dog. I said, oh, I understand. You're sad about your dog. You can't. All right, then you take your time. You do what you need to do. When you're ready, then you can come back. So yeah, resistance is going to come in so many forms. And I think the best thing we can do is take it seriously and raise the question, how can I help? You, Misasha, also feel like you just got a really important parenting lesson there because <laughs> I saw you write that down. I was like, I know what's going to be a meme for this show. <laughs> Resistance is the beginning of a conversation that is so applicable to so many things, including this anti-racism work where people just, you know, that gut feeling where you're like, er, I don't know that I'm comfortable with this you interrogate. That's the beginning. It's not the end point. It's not a stop sign. It's like a signal, a yield sign. Okay. Now it's time to have this conversation. I really, really appreciate that. And also the taking the kids seriously. That's something that we've been working on in our home more too, with middle school, there's big feelings and there's big things that are happening. And as opposed to diminishing it or questioning it, it has been this practice of being like, wow, like I hear you, I see you, like you are a complete person right now. And let me help you practice, going back to that idea of practicing again, identifying what might be going on. And I feel like that's a really important thing for anybody with kids in their lives to know that you can help them be part of that practice. Like I wish I could import one-tenth of your patience right now because for you to do this with like gigantic groups of children when I'm like, oh my gosh, I have two and I can barely keep my head on straight. It's incredible. Thank you for saying that. And I do want to say about having so many children is, yes, I'm the only adult in the room, but I'm not the only teacher. And I'll say that to students. I'll say, well, Mrs. Freeland is not the only teacher in the room, right? You can help each other. You help each other learn. You can show each other things. In fact, you teach each other all the time. 
And that awareness is always that I'm aware of it, but to make them aware of the fact that they are contributors to what the results are in our class. That all, again, that's that sense of agency and that sense of like, oh, oh, my, I have a role to play and that taking seriously. So I don't necessarily have to solve every single problem. Some of them can be solved over there because I'm not the one who caused that problem. I think you two need to solve that. And if you need my assistance, then I'll come back to you. But right now I'm going to go do this thing. Such a good point. And that idea of giving kids agency is really profound and important because I know that in positive psych, which I love, you know, they have the questions at the end of the day, if kids know to expect that you're going to ask them what the best part of the day was, what the worst part of their day was, what they are most proud of themselves for, they'll start scanning their day, knowing that they're going to be asked these questions. And to ask them that question about like, what are you most proud of yourself for? They'll start seeing themselves and looking for their agency, their, their contribution to the day. So thank you for making that point. Hello, listeners. It's your co-host, Sarah, here. And today, we are super excited to share with you a special preview from another podcast we enjoy. And we really think you're going to like this one, especially the episode. It's called A Slight Change of Plans. On A Slight Change of Plans, Dr. Maya Shankar, a cognitive scientist who is an expert on human behavior, examines who we are and who we become in the face of a big life transformation. Maya has intimate conversations with people who have faced incredible transformations, people like Casey Musgraves and Amanda Knox, as well as real-life inspirations like Christine Ha, who became permanently blind in her early 20s and went on to win the reality TV show MasterChef. In this preview, she sits down with civil rights icon Ruby Bridges. When Ruby was just six years old, she became the very first African-American student to desegregate William France Elementary, an all-white school in Louisiana. She even had to be escorted to school by U.S. Marshals to make sure she wasn't harmed by protesters along the way. This was back in the 1960s, and it would take Ruby years to understand how her monumental experience as a child changed the course of civil rights in America. So, okay, here's the preview. We really hope you enjoy Maya and Ruby's conversations as much as we did. You can hear the full episode and more from A Slight Change of Plans wherever you get podcasts. I remember the knock at the door and my parents opened the door and four very tall white men were standing at the door. And I remember they had these yellow bands on their arms and my thought then was, you know, who are they? And not really knowing, but I remember the conversation. I remember them saying, we're U.S. Marshals and we've been sent by the president of the United States. We're here to escort you and your daughter to school today. That's Ruby Bridges, an icon of the civil rights movement. When Ruby was six years old, she became the very first African-American student to desegregate William France Elementary, an all-white school in Louisiana. She was not only the first, but also the only Black child attending the school. And U.S. Marshals had to escort Ruby there to make sure she wasn't harmed by protesters along the way. No one told Ruby how monumental this moment was, and it would be years before she would put all the pieces together and fully appreciate her role in shaping the future of civil rights in America. I thought that this was an incident that just happened in my community, on my street. 
That's what I thought. I wasn't aware that it was so important that it changed the face of education and that people around the country were familiar with it. I did not realize that my walk, my story was a part of a much bigger family, the civil rights family, the civil rights movement. On today's show, we hear the story of how six-year-old Ruby Bridges changed the course of history. Ruby Bridges was born in 1954, the same year the U.S. Supreme Court issued its landmark ruling in Brown v. Board of Education. Up until that point, public schools were allowed to segregate on the basis of race. But in Brown v. Board, the Supreme Court declared segregated schools to be inherently unequal and ruled that it was unconstitutional to racially segregate children in public schools. Despite this ruling, states in the South resisted the court's order, and segregation continued. But eventually, a federal judge ordered the New Orleans School Board to act. And after years of resistance, they finally initiated a plan to integrate two white schools, starting with students in the first grade. Still, the board did not make it easy. They introduced a number of new requirements just for Black students. One of these requirements was an entrance exam, and nearly 140 prospective first graders took the test. A handful of them passed, and Ruby Bridges was one of them. Ruby, the the NAACP shows up at your doorstep in the summer to tell your parents that you've passed this test, and you're now allowed to attend William France Elementary School. I'm wondering how your parents responded to this news. My mother was the one who really initiated this. And I think, you know, for the most part, like most moms, they want, you know, the best for their children. And and not to say that my father didn't want that, but my father had just recently uh, gotten out of the service where he fought in the Korean War in a segregated branch of the military. Uh, he felt like if you could be on the battlefield next to a white soldier fighting for the same country. And yet, at the end of the day, if you lived, you couldn't go back to the same barracks together because he was Black and his counterpart was white. They couldn't eat in the same mess hall together. So he felt like, why send me to this integrated school facing all of the problems that could have happened because things wouldn't change anyway? Hmm. And that's really how he felt. But I do believe that they were very excited that I'd passed the test. And, you know, your mom eventually convinces your dad, who's on the fence, right? And they do decide to enroll you in William France that fall. And, you know, I know there were delays because of increased resistance from opposition, but you do end up having an enrollment date of November 14th, 1960. And the night before your first day... Your mom tells you that you'll be joining a new school, but she doesn't tell you much more than that. No, you know, and and I grew up in an era where, you know, you were seen and really not heard. I mean, we could not even be in the same room with adults when they were having grown up conversation. It wasn't like they were going to sit me down and explain everything to me. You know, it was only (laughs) 
on a need to know basis. That's, you know, how they felt. So the only thing they said is, Ruby, you're going to go to a new school today and you better behave. Now, I do remember taking the test, you know, weeks before, but I wasn't privileged to what the test was about, what all of that meant. I just knew that I was going to be going to a new school. And like most kids, you're a little bit nervous when you have to switch schools because you're going to leave your old friends and, you know, and your teacher and the school that I had just gotten used to because I was only there for kindergarten. So uh, that was it. And and also, Ruby, you better behave. <laughs> mm. And that's what I was concentrating on is behaving. I'm wondering, Ruby, if you can bring us back to that first morning when you were getting ready for your new school. Well, I remember that morning because I'd already had a, a first day. Hmm. I'd had a first day the year before. And yet this first day was totally different. You know, neighbors were coming over. My mother's uh, friends were coming to dress me for school. And, you know, I had all these beautiful new things to wear that really didn't happen when I started kindergarten. And it just seemed like the house was full of people and it was all centered around me going to school. And so that in itself was very different. Did I feel special? Yes, I felt really special for some reason. As a matter of fact, in my tiny six-year-old mind, remembering the test that I had taken and how excited everybody was about the test, I really thought that the reason why this was so different and so many people were excited and uh, congratulating my parents and saying, oh, my goodness, she's so smart. You know, I really felt like, okay, that test must have been so important and no other kids could pass it that now I am going from first grade straight to college. So I thought... I thought everybody was so excited because they just had never seen a six-year-old go straight to college. And uh, But, you know, that's the imagination of a child and the innocence that protected me during that time. Mm. So I remember that back and forth. And uh, then I remember the knock at the door and my parents opened the door and four very tall white men were standing at the door. And I remember they had these yellow bands on their arms. And my thought then was, who are they? And not really knowing, but I remember the conversation. I remember them saying, we are U.S. Marshals and we've been sent by the president of the United States. We're here to escort you and your daughter to school today. And even then, it just felt so important. I remember us getting into the car with them. Two of them sat in the front seat and two in the back. My mom and I got into the car with them and we started this very short drive to my new school. And then even some of the neighbors, they seemed ready to go as well. And uh, we got in the car, we started to drive and all of the neighbors actually walked behind the car. Wow. Did the federal marshals give you instructions about about what to do when you arrived at the school? Not really me, but I overheard the conversation where they were talking to my mom about how mm. we should get out of the car. And, you know, I remember them saying, Miss Bridges, we'll get out first. We'll surround you and your daughter. We want you to walk straight ahead and don't look back. Hmm. I remembered that. Um, I did see all of the people uh, standing out in front of the school when we drove up. 
But again, living here in New Orleans and being accustomed to Mardi Gras, you know, something that every kid here in the city looks forward to. Um, when I saw all of the people and I saw barricades, you know, uh, where the people were standing behind the barricades, I saw police officers on motorcycles and horseback. All of that actually happens during Mardi Gras. Mm. Because at any given time, you could be in your car and stumble into a parade uh, and you have to stay in your car and wait till the parade passes. So, you know, I say that to say that I did not feel a need to be afraid. That was a preview of A Slight Change of Plans from Pushkin Industries. Hear more from A Slight Change of Plans wherever you get your podcasts. Can we go back to that idea that I wrote down, though, that resistance is the beginning of a conversation? Because my question for you is, you know, Misasha and I talk about uncomfortable conversations all the time. I presume, knowing kids, how observant, intelligent, and curious they are, that uncomfortable conversations also play out in spaces at school that you're a part of. How do they show up? How do you handle them? What are things that come up in the school setting, whether it's like big stuff, right? Like kids get injustice. They get racial difference. They get gender. They get like ableism and and that sort of thing. What do you see? They do. And what's interesting is in my context, what I find is that the conversations that I've had with students in class have been like one example is I remember a group of second graders where someone mentioned something about being a slave. And I said, hold up, wait a minute. Okay. So I said, tell me, do you know about slaves? Tell me, where does that word come from? And then we had this conversation that was very interesting because they did know quite a bit. They knew what a slave was. They knew a little bit about American slavery. And then we, and I explained why that was not an appropriate term to use and the way it was being used. Like, no, that's not how we use it. And then we just moved on. This was something that took maybe two minutes, but it was addressed. Another case in PE, for instance, in older grades, typically I will ask ask them to make groups. I rarely use teams. I usually say we need, you know, all gender groups. So I don't say boys and girls, even though that's what it amounts to. They say, oh, do you mean you have to have boys and girls? Yes, but all genders. So all of the genders are included here. And, but we're often, what happens when kids make groups, when I let them make teams, so to speak, then we have a conversation about, I'll say, well, okay, so are we in agreement? Are these, do we agree that these teams are fair? If you look at them, do you think in terms of what we're going to, the thing that we're going to play, are these fair teams? Yes, no. And then usually there are some sheepish sort of people who kind of like, no, 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 no. And then we have this conversation about equity. I'll say, well, what kind of game do you want? If you want an unfair game where one team dominates and the other team loses, you can have that because it looks like you maybe you're set up to do that. But I don't think that's what you want. I think you would rather have a fair game. So if you're going to have a fair game, then there may be some sacrifices that you'll need to make in order to have fair teams. So you might need to separate from your buddy You might need to sort of spread the wealth of a certain skill level, but you need to make those decisions based on the outcome that you're looking for. And so that's a way of talking about equity is what are we actually trying to achieve here? And that for them, that's very concrete. 
because that is their world. That is what they are living with every single day. That's how they decide where they're going to sit at lunch. That's how they're deciding who gets to be on the soccer pitch. All of these things. I mean, kids, they think in hierarchies. They produce their own intricate, complicated, detailed hierarchies. And so what we do in PE, we have an opportunity to kind of break those apart, peel them apart and reformulate our social groupings to create something that's different that they wouldn't necessarily create on their own. Holy smokes. Do all PE teachers do this? Because that seems so intentional. Right. Because I was like, that was not my PE class. Not at all. But I wish that was my PE class. Oh my gosh. Sarah and I are always talking about how we are anti-racist, you know, in every sphere of life, right? And I think what you gave about that example of teams or groups is such a fantastic example because it's in PE class, right? You're not on a frontline march, but you are asking kids and giving kids the structure to be able to think about these questions themselves, to have that agency, as we've been talking about, to start to question, well, is this equitable? Is this, you know, is what I'm doing here outside of PE class, is that equitable? Because I love working with kids and I think that they have such a strong sense too of fairness and justice. And when they're like, that's not right, then suddenly they'll be like, what else isn't right? And I think to just plant that seed, right? And give them the tools to run with it is amazing. Thank you. It's funny because it's something, it's recurring, right? It's something that comes up again and again. And this, the need to make groups and to form, and I give them time. It takes them a long time. And they will often come to me and say, could you make the groups, please? And I'll say, well, I could, but what would you be learning? And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. And so there's that piece. But the point is that it's also something, that's something we practice. We do it again and again and again. And by the end of the year, They've kind of got an idea of like how to do it quickly because actually they want to play the game. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, kids, they're not there for like, oh, here's our lesson on equity. No, they want to play the game. (laughs) So, And they want to play the game so that they can leave the space in a relatively good mood and not bickering with each other, right? We want to have a lesson where they can leave and say, oh yeah, good game. All right, sweet. Let's go. And then they're on to the next thing. But I love what you said about that being the requirement for that, the need that precedes that is time. And we have to be willing to invest the time because it's not necessarily a skill that everyone's born with that comes naturally. Like walking wasn't natural. We had to have time to practice walking. Like all of these intentional activities take time, but that even by the end of the year, one like school year, kids can get better at this particular skill. So adults absolutely can, but that we have to give ourselves time. And again, take away that sense of urgency, take away that perfectionism, that pressure, and just spend the time doing the thing, doing the work. I really like that. It really does. It works. And point is, it's not when you practice and when you practice in community, it's not a chore. It's just part of what you do. It doesn't take as, you know, over time, it doesn't take as long. It's not as cumbersome. You don't have to think as long and hard. It's not a big deal for you to say, oh, to your best friend, okay, yeah, you go there, I'll go there, right? Then like we learn, we learn how to, you know, just sort of deal with those compromises because we know that actually the greater outcome 
is actually more satisfying. I love that. Sarah, I hope you're going to take this recording and give it to your kids in school to be like, hey, just a thought, like maybe PE should be required, at least through middle school, because these are formative years on that front. So I want to shift gears a little bit, you know, because this is a question I've been wanting to ask. And, you know, I want to talk about you being, as a Black woman, raising sons. And you're doing it in Vienna, which is, you know, different than the U.S., yet similar in a lot of ways, right? So how does your race, right, or who your sons are impact what you do? And how do you approach these concepts? You know, and there's this follow on question, since having my boys, so many things have changed. And so how has having your sons changed you, you know, becoming a parent and realizing that you've got these kids now that are your responsibility in your world? That's a wonderful question. And what's so fascinating to me is that I have two sons, but they are also almost a generation apart and technologically like five generations apart because they're 14 and 28. And I guess because as a child, I learned that kind of like the point of parenting was to literally was to like to get you to launch, like, okay, fly off, go, goodbye. So that I have this thing of like independence, like I really am into like, okay, you got to be independent. You got to be able to fly. And as a Black woman in Vienna for these many, many years, I've been here probably for 30 some years, I feel like I've been able to do that. And I've had a certain freedom to do that in a way that has felt, I feel like in many ways, less constrained than it might have been if I had stayed in the States. So my sons are biracial. Their dads are Austrian, Austrian men. And they also speak German and they have both nationalities. They have the benefit of these, you know, dual cultures and these different languages. And still that aspect of being where people were not always clear. So where, you know, they would also occasionally get the question of where are you from? Or they're, they're like, dude, I'm from Vienna. Like, what do you think? Like, you know, so it's always eye-opening to me. So when I have spoken to them about race, I've been very clear about my Blackness. And before my older son moved to the US, now it's been three and a half years ago, I remember saying to him, look, I want to be absolutely clear. You will be read as a Black male. You may not feel that way. You may not identify yourself that way, but that is how you will be read, period. So take that awareness with you wherever you go. And he understood that just in the, you could hear it in the tone. Like, I'm not messing with you now here. This is critical knowledge. And my, my young son, who is now, who's just entered high school, is all, you know, he's got his own, I realize they have their own worlds. And that's something that I, as a black woman, I do not know their experience as biracial folks. Like I have to also sort of ask them, right? So I need to be curious about how they see the world and how they see their own experience because it is different from mine. At the same time, I feel like we can have very frank conversations about race. And, but I do feel like I've had all kinds of advantages being here and having a certain privileged status as an English speaker, as a person with a fairly rich and prestigious academic background, having an American passport. These are all things that, again, those are markers of privilege in this context. And so I live a fairly privileged life here. 
And I enjoy that. I recognize it and I also enjoy it and also recognize that my, it would be very different. It might be quite different if I were in the States. So I think that is something I'm going to carry with me along with like 12 or 15 or 25 other things that, um, you know, you like sort of pearls of wisdom that you've dropped on us in this conversation. But, you know, I'm cognizant of the time as well. Is there anything that we didn't ask that you'd like to share? I really just want to say thank you. And actually, I have, I do have a question for the two of you. If you had a great wish for your children and your children's children, so looking far into the future and their experiences as learners, I'm going to leave it broad. What would it be? I think my off the top of the head answer to that is that they will understand and know that they have their own zones of genius and can be, can be appreciated for the way that their brains learn, the way their bodies function, and that they are great the way they are. And I want them to just have this desire, this curiosity, this openness to lean into however it is that they interact with the world the best. Thank you. Thank you. So oh, I love that answer. You know, I want I feel like, as, and Sarah's heard me say this about a million times, but I feel like as adults, we lose the ability to ask why, right? To keep asking why. I think we take a lot of stuff for granted or we're told, you know, this has always been this way. And we're like, okay, cool. Sounds great. Like, we'll just keep on, you know, that path because it's worked for a small percentage of people and no one else. But I want my kids as learners and their kids, you know, to keep asking why, because if the answer that they get is it's always been that way, then they should be asking about a million follow-up questions to that. Because I think it's only when we use that curiosity, right, about ourselves, about others, about the world that we live in, about our communities, that we get to create a different path for our collective selves, right? So that's my hope for them. Oh, thank you. Wow. Those are, oh, wow. Taking those with me. Where can people find you, though, if they want some more of your wisdom, your writings? My wisdom that. is all on Twitter. <laughs> Literally. Where you'll I be only... judged for your 130 <laughs> characters. <laughs> no, it's true. Twitter is like my living room. So that is where I spend most of my, that's where I spend my, my social media time. So I'm at Edified Listener, which is also the name of my personal blog, edifiedlistener.blog. And otherwise, I also publish a monthly social justice newsletter for educators titled Bending the Arc. So, yeah. We will make sure we link to all that in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sherry. This was a pleasure. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing... Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. 